This is an MVP podcast, My Village Productions. Welcome to Unsolved America, a show where we explore unsolved mysteries throughout the United States. I'm your host, Tiffany. And I'm your host, Andy, and each week we will throw a dart at the map and wherever it lands is the location of our mystery. This week, I landed on Illinois. OMG, what happened in Illinois this week? Well, we're going to talk about a woman named Helen Voorhees. Ooh, any relation to Jason? I wish, but no. That'd be wild. No. Helen was not born rich. Okay. She married relatively young and had no children. And she actually divorced pretty soon after she got married to that first husband. Okay. She moved to Florida Mm. to escape her family and to get a better job. Mm. And eventually started working as a receptionist and a hat check assistant at the Indian Creek Country Club. But that is where she met Frank Bratch. Bratch? Brack. Brack. B-R-A-C-H. Brock. Brock. Brackus. Who was the heir to the Brock candy fortune? Oh. At one point, E.J. Brack and Sons Company sold two-thirds of their candy in the U.S., and when Frank sold the company in 1966, he got $136 million for it. Holy fuck. Which would be kind of equivalent to about $1 billion today. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. So it was definitely a fortune and a big, a big candy company. When you said 136, I was like, oh, he got 136,000 for his company. That's real cute. No, no, no. 136 million. That's wild. Right. What candy did they make? Do we know? I I didn't look. Hmm. I'll look that up later. Yeah. Watch. It's like the, it's like something related to Mars or something like. (laughs) The gobstopper of his day. Like. Brock turned into Mars candy. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would be funny. Oh my gosh. Oh, hello. I know who it's literally Brock candy. They sell like all the like the butterscotches and like the Yeah. I, I don't know why that just clicked. I've seen the label before. Yeah. It's like the hard candies. I don't think they do like chocolates and stuff, do they? No, they do like candy corn and candy canes. Yeah. They make like this is going to sound really mean. They make like a lot of the generic candies that you don't think about like where it came from. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the peppermint mints. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, They do make like the caramels that I love. Ooh, the little, the little rectangular ones. Mm-hmm. Little cubes. Ooh, yes. Those are good. Yes. Oh, they make candy hearts. Mm-hmm. Literally, that's the logo that popped in my head. I know who you're talking about now. Yeah. When you said it, it didn't click. But now I'm like, I got you. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, he he was making some good money. Oh, I forgot about those. Do you remember the Neapolitan <laughs> coconut little things? Mm. Kind of gross. But, like, I remember eating them as a kid. Weird. Okay. We're, we went off on a tangent. I'm keeping this in here. It's fascinating. <laughs> so he sold, like, butterscotch, peppermint, all the good candies. Mm-hmm. He sold it for $136 million. That's wild. Who bought it? We don't need to know. <laughs> Continue the story. <laughs> I'm more interested in, in the, 
the husband than the, <laughs> the actual murder case. <laughs> Tell me more about the husband. Oh, Tell me more about the rich one. Well, <sighs> Frank and Helen met. He was actually still married uh, at the time to his then second wife. Oh, jeez. Okay. Was uh, she a homewrecker? Well, no, because the couple was already in the middle of separating when Got they it. met. Okay, okay, okay. As it was reported, so who really knows? But yes. Okay. But June, his second wife, accused Helen of being a homewrecker and having extramarital affairs with him uh-huh. during the divorce proceedings. So okay. she called she called them out, but they're saying that nothing happened until they were separated. His publicist stepped in and said. We yeah. weren't doing that. Right. So, and then Frank married Helen in 1950. Mm-hmm. And he transformed her into a member of high society. Love it. Um, they actually had a lot in common because Frank came up uh, not so, sh- like, like economic. Not- well yeah, he, he came from a background of poverty as well. And okay. so they bonded on that. But mm. obviously he was in a different place when they when met they, yeah and she was thrusted into high society perhaps one of the most like remarkable aspects of helen brush is story she seemingly vanished into thin air though oh the chicago tribune reports that helen was traveling to the mayo clinic in rochester minnesota in february 1977 okay she was there for a routine physical okay and that was the last time a reliable witness saw her was when she oh. purchased a gift at the shop at the hospital at the Mayo Clinic. A gift? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. The cashier at the shop recalls her saying, please hurry and finish wrapping. My houseman is waiting, which the cashier took to mean Helen's driver who was waiting for her. Huh. Helen Brack won a... Helen Brack left the shop and was never seen again. Weird. They report that Helen's houseman, Jack Matlick, claimed that he picked up Helen at Chicago's O'Hare Airport when she returned from Rochester and drove her home. But they also say that no one on the flight crew that day could recall seeing her. But according to Matlick, Helen stayed at their home or her home for four days spoke to no one and then he drove back to the airport to travel to or she drove her back to the airport to travel to florida because she wanted to go to florida but she never arrived in florida so the airport not have like a record of her being on the flight i mean this was 1977 they didn't have like a manifest or i mean i don't think so they don't they didn't really keep records like they do now oh. yeah they if you're on plane they gonna know you're on the plane right. in today's day and age right but i guess yeah in the 70s they probably were a little bit more lax yeah they were i and mean I that mean, was the time you could walk somebody to the gate right i mean that was you could yeah. probably still smoke on an airplane oh you could so one of the biggest like aspects to this whole thing is that Helen really relied on her houseman, Jack, okay. for pretty much everything. Okay. 
He was hired by Helen's husband in 1956 to work as a chauffeur and a handyman. And then when Frank passed away, Helen relied on him for even more, making him responsible for the upkeep of the house and, the, you know, just everything. Oh, so the husband is dead died. Yeah, he died. Oh, wow. Sad day. So Matlick, like I said, claimed that he picked up Helen at the O'Hara Airport on February 17th. He took her home where she stayed inside for the four days, seeing no one, making no phone calls. Even a group of painters working at the house saw no evidence that she was home. Then Matlick claimed he drove Helen back to the airport where she got on a plane to Florida, but none of her friends in Florida knew she was coming or even saw her or anything. Which is weird. Right. When he got hired uh-huh. by Frank, Frank didn't know that Matlick was actually not a great person. Oh. He had a criminal record, which oh, included no. aggravated robbery. Oh, no. Matlick was also reported to be really abusive to his own wife. Oh. I know. So the man that Helen spent a lot of time with was actually probably kind of violent. So it was kind of a little bit mysterious and not known. Yeah. So obviously Matlick is a popular suspect in the disappearance of Helen for a lot of different reasons. First, he claimed to be picking her up at Chicago in Chicago on the day she vanished, then driven her home and then drove her back to the airport four days later. No one else saw her during that time, though. Friends actually stopped by the house in that four-day period, and Matlick would answer the fo- the door and say she was not feeling well and would send them away. Helen's gardener also claimed to have seen Matlick at Helen's home during those four days uh, in the company of two suspicious-looking strangers. Matlick was also reportedly engaged in a lot of, like, suspicious cleaning in the house. Mm. Yeah. He had two rooms painted. The carpet in one room replaced and Mm -hmm. Helen's Cadillac detailed during that four day period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Matlick also admitted to forging Helen's signature on checks totaling about $13,000. He also admitted stealing $75,000 in cash from the house. And then he gave up a $50,000 bequest in her will in order to make those charges go away. So... He he got fifty thousand in her will, but he gave it up to make the charges of the seventy five thousand and the thirteen thousand dollars to go away. Hmm. He also reportedly ordered a meat grinder attachment during this time. Oh no! I know. I'm just confused as to why this story is on Unsolved America because I think we know who did it. Well, we don't know though. I know, I'm waiting for the twist and the turn. <laughs> From all of this, it's being claimed that Jack was the last person who have seen her alive when he picked her up, but he also didn't bother to report her missing for two weeks. According to the Washington Post, when uh, Jack finally did make the call, the police informed him that only a member of her immediate family could make a missing persons report under the state law. Okay. He he tracked down Helen's brother, Charles, who was living in Ohio, and he had like a little bit of an odd reaction to this. He was 
kind of unbothered by it. And he also said that he couldn't make it out right then and he would try to come out by the end of the week. That's weird. It is weird. But were they were they estranged or were they close? Do we know? It didn't really say, but I mean, still, it just his reaction was just odd. Mm -hmm. Even if you're estranged, like you would still be. I feel a little bit worried about your sibling being missing. Yeah. When he did manage to take the trip out there, he asked Jack to help him destroy some of Helen's personal papers, including burning her diary. And then, and that was before he reached out to the police to make the official report. Charles was probably the only person who could have pushed the authorities to keep investigating. But instead, he was actually kind of happy that the police gave up and there was no significant progress in Helen's case in the last 20 years or 30 years, 40 years, whatever. Yeah. Now, I told you Frank passed away. He passed away in 1970 and Helen was 59 years old at the time. Okay. As a widower with no children, it's not surprising that she was happy to meet a man who seemed to take like a romantic interest in her. Okay. And this man was named Richard Bailey, but it was found out that Bailey was a gigolo. Oh. And a con man. Oh. Who targeted women who were alone in life. Ew. I know. What a terrible person. Yeah. According to the Washington Post, Bailey was connected to the corrupt world of Chicago horse racing. Okay. And his favorite scam was to uh, encourage his lovers to invest in racehorses that were presented as surefire winners, but were in reality low quality animals and not purebreds. Oh. It was said that he purchased three horses from his brother for $18,000 and convinced Helen to buy them for $98,000. Jesus. Bailey had targeted at least 12 minute, or twelve women in similar schemes and had strong connections to organized crime. That connection led to many suspects that might have killed Helen. They assumed that maybe she caught on and was trying to threaten to expose him of this. She also told a friend that she intended to contact the district attorney when she returned from her checkup at the Mayo Clinic in February of 1977 when she went missing, Okay, which was the last time she was seen alive, obviously. The police didn't thoroughly investigate Bailey for many years, though, afterwards. The original investigation into Helen Brack's disappearance wasn't that thorough Mm -hmm. and ended with, like, some questions and interrogations. Okay. Helen was declared legally dead in 1984, but then in 18 or 1989, federal prosecutors reopened the case, taking a closer look at this gigolo who ripped her off. Okay. Bailey was a very shady character with ties to Chicago's criminal underground, as I said, and he was involved in a lot of schemes selling those worthless horses to clueless investors. It eventually led to his indictment on charges of fraud and conspiracy to commit murder. And But prosecutors didn't believe Bailey had actually killed Helen, but rather he had arranged for her death when she threatened to expose his scam. Okay. But in the end, they couldn't quite pin that on him. Okay. And he was found just guilty on fraud charges, but not murder. Okay. The judge on the case gave him a really harsh sentence for this, though, of 30 years. 
based on the preponderance of evidence that he'd been involved in the murder somehow. The reports that I read through also tie Bailey to this man named Joe Plemons. Okay. Who was... He, was, he wasn't just a horse thief, but he was a con artist as well. They actually called him the Michelangelo of horse thieves. Okay, that's a weird nickname. I know. Um, but he did exactly what Bailey did. He, he would buy really undervalued um, animals and then try to sell them for top dollar. Hmm. He, but Plemons always avoided significant jail time for his crimes despite being caught several times. Okay. And when he found himself in some legal trouble, he used uh, his knowledge of the Chicago underworld and offered to cooperate with the police on other matters. One of the most notorious cases that Plemons helped with was that of Ken Hansen, who killed three boys in 1955. Okay. When Bailey was on trial for the murder of Helen Brack, Plemons cooperated once again. And according uh, to Plemons, he testified that Bailey had offered him $5,000 to murder Helen just a few weeks before her disappearance. And his testimony contributed to the 30-year sentence that Bailey received. Okay. When he testified that Bailey had tried to hire him to kill Helen in 1977, decades later, though, an aging Plemons revised his story, and it got a lot worse. In 2004, he reached out to the police and told them an incredible story. He claimed that Helen had been murdered on the orders of gangster Silas Jane, And Helen intended to go to the police about some worthless racing horses sold to her by Richard Bailey. So she was killed to make sure that didn't happen. Okay. He implicated 11 people in Brock's murder years later. Okay. The Chicago Tribune reports that Plemons claimed that the notorious killer, Ken Hansen, the one that had killed the three boys, called him and ordered him to drive out to his stable. And when he arrived, he was told to help Hansen and several others dispose of Helen's body. But when they tried to move her, she moaned, realizing that she was still alive despite being badly beaten. Hansen forced Plemons to shoot Helen or be shot himself. And Plemons said that he was forced to help dispose of the body by burning it in the furnace at a steel mill some distance away. The police couldn't corroborate his story and didn't think Plemons was a credible witness. So they took no action on this because he came, like I said, many, many years later and told this story. Yeah. Then in 2005, nearly 30 years after the disappearance of Helen, a new clue was introduced in the case, a ruby ring. According to the con artist's, Joe Clemens, he came into possession of the ring that he participated in that night. So he was trying to really loop this back in even a year later Mm -hmm. when they didn't take any action. And he said that when they were moving Helen's body, he noticed something shiny on the floor. So he hid it from the other men and retrieved it later. And it was discovered to be a ring with a large ruby stone. He believed it fell off of Helen's finger, and then in 2005, he turned it over to the police. Despite the fact that much of Fleming's story checked out, the police didn't trust him and could never really authenticate the ring. Okay. um, Which it still remains in an evidence locker to this day. Mm -hmm. 
So no action again was taken uh, because of Plemons' information. Okay. He passed away in 2016 at the age of 69. Wow. So really, I mean, that's all the information that people have. And the reason I wanted to bring it up because in 2000, something happened in 2005, but obviously they didn't want to run it down because it was 30 years later. She was finally declared legally dead, like I told you. And then they allowed her estate to be settled, which didn't close the case, though. So the case is still open to this day. No signs of Helen's body has ever been located. The New York Times reported in 1978 an identified body was found in like a forest close by. And they went and dug up the body and exhumed it years later, believing it might be Helen. And the medical examiner concluded that it was not Helen and that Helen, Charles, Helen's brother, actually made like this beautiful, really like gravestone for her in Ohio which obviously remains empty to this day. Um, but, you know, at least he moved forward, even though he didn't seem interested that she was missing. Mm-hmm. At least he did something for her. Helen's name is still, you know, brought up because they're in her will. She wanted to put a piece of money to and create a uh, Helen V. Brock Foundation, a nonprofit she established okay and it's dedicated to protection of children and animals from abuse which is wonderful mm. yeah uh she left behind a considerable estate according to the new york times she was worth about 17 million dollars in 1977 which would be about 73 75 million okay i just did uh, now I want to talk about, uh, Helen's lawyer, Menk, the man that, you know, was poking around Yeah, because he was like, this is weird. People are not acting how they should be. The yeah. police aren't acting how they should be. And so a couple weeks after the disappearance and everything was happening, Menk went over to Helen's house to see if he could locate a copy of her will. Because no one would let him see it. Oh, weird. And when he went to the house, he found her luggage from that day that she disappeared. In the house, um, complete with like airline tags still attached to it. Oh. The police had searched the house as part as uh, as part of their original investigation, but they never said anything about that or it wasn't in any like reports weird so it feels like the luggage was placed there to like create some sort of ambiance around the narrative that uh the handyman was saying Mm -hmm. and so but if it still had like airline tags on it and stuff like wouldn't you wouldn't that somehow corroborate the story that she really did get picked up from the airport and yeah. was brought home that day? Yeah, but also, why wasn't it unpacked? And if she was... if he, She was home for four days. Yeah. She was home for four days, and then she asked to be taken back to the airport to go to Florida, and he claimed that she he was doing that and that he had dropped her off at the airport. But so her luggage wouldn't be there? Yeah. Oh. 
Weird. So that corroborates the story of her coming back home to Chicago, mm-hmm. but no one saw her. And in that four days, like people tried to come see her. So I have a question. So did her like chauffeur, like the the man that drove her everywhere? Jack, did, yeah. Did he travel with her? Like, he didn't travel with her. So because her her estate is in Minnesota. Her estate's in um, Chicago. She was in Minnesota to go to the Mayo Clinic. And that's where the last time she was seen was she in was Minnesota. And was in Minnesota. So Got technically it. it could be for this could be for Illinois or Minnesota. But since it was Got officially it. the last place she was seen was Minnesota. It's I put it under Minnesota. Interesting. OK, that's I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. I missed something. No. OK, I get it. Interesting. So he didn't travel with her, but he he picked her. He said he picked her up from the airport at you know, Chicago at O'Hare. I mean, somebody did it. <laughs> Clearly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unsolved America. Head on over to Facebook and Instagram and follow us at Unsolved America MVP. And be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to contact us, please email unsolvedamericamvp at gmail.com and we'll talk to you next week. This has been an MVP podcast, My Village Productions. 